I'm continuing something that Emily launched uh, last Sunday. We all know that, uh, and it has to do with this question of um, reconstructing faith when an old construction of our faith uh, doesn't work so well for us. So we all know that learning uh, takes more patience when it requires unlearning. So like learning to parent for many of us or, or to be a great partner or a great friend, we, we don't just start with a clean slate we, we, and fill it with like a few, you know, like 17 parenting books or a Nestor Perel podcast. I just learned who that was, so I'm not that culturally relevant. Um, we, we find ourselves like learning new ways of being that require us to unlearn at the same time old ways of being. And so we're simultaneously sorting through the past while we're creating a new future that happens all the time. It happens with in a lot of realms of our lives. So in matters of faith and spirituality, um, I think we many of us can understand that it may be easier to know what doesn't work than what does. Um, is it Richard Rohr who speaks of three phases in this uh, faith process? There's an original construction, you know, the faith that we received earlier in our lives. Then we go through a process of deconstruction when that's no longer working for us, and that's followed by a time of reconstruction. So in, in January, this coming January, I think we'll be doing an online class, maybe with um, David Borger German from the Iowa, um, a church in Iowa City uh, Sanctuary, uh, kind of a sister church to ours. We'll do an online class to deconstruct, I think maybe like four toxic teachings, like, like the uh, traditional view of hell, and, and then offer alternatives that make better use of the raw data of our spiritual tradition. Um, but on Sundays, um, and Emily mentioned this last week, we tend to lean into reconstruction, like perspectives going forward. It's just, I don't know, it's less fraud, it's more fun. Uh, when Emily said last Sunday that we're going to be focusing on this for a while in terms of our Sunday content, at least among us Zoomies, the, the chat lit, lit up. Um, like, yeah, good timing, man, I'd, I'd love that, I need that. So today, some reconstruction on how God is introduced in the opening chapter of Genesis, actually just the first few verses, highlighting a few surprises that we might have missed in an older construction of faith. But first, um, what's in our hands when we hold the Bible? I've got the Jewish study Bible here. What's in our hands when we're holding a copy of the Bible? Um, Many, many people, you know, emphasize who are into the Bible, like to emphasize the authority of the Bible, as if this is like absolutely God speaking every word, receive it, believe it, submit to it, even if it doesn't make sense. It's actually an unprovable hypothesis. And, and I think it's an unhelpful starting point for actually engaging the Bible. It's one that feels like a power grab. Um, cults make similar kinds of demands, like, you know, give over to this system and put your head on the hat rack. When the concern is with the authority of Scripture in, in any tradition, uh, that to me is a tip-off. Like, I'm encountering a system that is using Scripture to impose control. Uh, my defenses are automatically up in that kind of a setting. I'm wound up a little tight. And for me, that 
totally works against experiencing God. So it's like, even if it's a great restaurant with a, I don't know what, a three-star Michelin chef, I don't want to be force-fed. I'll just slip away and grab me an Impossible Whopper with light mayo and heavy pickles. So I think there's a more humble, less fraught approach than this book is the boss of everyone. And it's this. This is a work in the genre called sacred writing, meaning it's an attempt to bear witness to the experience of the divine within a particular culture inhabiting a particular historical context. If that's the case, then inspiration is what we're after, not so much authority. Inspiration is what we're after, whether it's art or athletics or math or science or anything that floats our boat. We are life-seeking creatures after all. We're just always on a quest for inspiration. The first thing we notice when we crack open this uh, Bible um, is actually the, the early pages are about the translation because it's normally a translation. So there's a little article about how the thing was translated and by whom. Usually it was done by a committee of scholars who've devoted their life to this work, meaning like that's, it's hard to do. It's not anyone can translate. Um, they're translating from original languages, uh, usually Hebrew and Greek into English for most of us here. I mean, this is not a modern North American writing to modern North Americans. Notice how I adroitly include Canadians there. <laughs> um, I crack me up. That's all that's possible when you're talking in a room and you can't hear people. Uh, this is not Brene Brown distilling her fascinating research on contemporary concerns that easily resonate with us because we share a rich cultural context with Brene Brown. It's something very different. So the Bible first appears as a collection of writings, not just oral tradition or scattered manuscripts, but as a congealed, you know, thing that it first appears probably like 2,600 years ago, so like 500 BC. It was put together by the southern tribe of Israel, the Judites. Uh, originally, Israel was a loose confederation of nomadic peoples who found themselves in forced exile in Babylon. Uh, their ba Babylonian conquerors uh, of Jerusalem and destroyers of the first temple targeted the literate class for deportation to Babylon so that they brought some manuscripts with them, apparently. And in exile, it seems like they put them together in what became a collection that we now call the Bible. All of this underscores this comes from a cultural context that is light years removed from our cultural context. So why bother with such a book? Well, first, we don't have to bother. Uh, sacred literature is not the only way to connect with the divine. Uh, but a reason to bother engaging uh, is that we're engaging perspectives that come from a cultural context very different than, than our own. And that can actually be a plus, this ancient culture, because it speaks in very different ways than we are used to speaking or hearing things. Like every culture, including our own, is a filter for experience. So every culture filters out some aspects 
of human experience. In other words, that every culture highlights some aspects of human experience while it diminishes or dims others. So in a sense, it's the Bible's cultural remoteness, not its you know cultural relevance buzzword um, that is the draw here, at least for me. Our, our smartphones are feeding us cultural relevance hours each day. This is a break from all the cultural re relevance, just like traveling to a remote part of the world is a break from North American culture. And the one thing that this very different cultural context and the people from it did not filter out is the raw human desire to engage the divine or, or to engage transcendent realities that are just perceived out of the corner of our eyes. I mean, this remote to us culture was not at all conflict, conflicted or embarrassed or shy about interacting with transcendent or divine realities. To do so for them was as normal as it is for normal for a sex therapist to talk about sex. So let's dive into the way this book goes about introducing a figure that we call God. So the book of Genesis received it, its English name. I'm just quoting from the Jewish study Bible introduction here from the Hebrew word Toledot, which is used 13 times in Genesis and means story or record or line as in like line of descent or generations keeping in mind that for the ancients a genealogy was a way of telling a story it was interesting it was packed with story if if we were um on a first online dating service meetup as if i have any experience in such things <laughs> having a cup of coffee say we, we might say tell me a bit about your story and if the initial meetup seems worth it, more meetups might follow, and we'd be listening for stories, for vignettes that paint a picture of the person. We'd be evaluating the stories. We'd be engaging the stories to get a sense of the person. Stories, great introduction. In the first book, Genesis, a character we call God shows up in one story after another. I can only think of like three rules that are in the book of Genesis. It's all stories, narratives. Now let's look for these, those three surprises in just the first few lines of this opening story poem. I'm using the um, Orthodox Jewish translation, uh, which mixes English with the Hebrew. So it gives you a feel of the Hebrew uh, while being an English translation. See, you see what I mean when I quote it. In the beginning, Elohim, created Hashomayim, the heavens, and Hararet, the earth. And the earth was tohu vebohu, without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Ruach Elohim was hovering upon the face of the waters. And Elohim said, let there be light, and there was light. And Elohim saw the light, that it was tov, good. And Elohim divided the or, light, from the shoshek, darkness. And Elohim called the light yom, day, and the darkness he called Layla, night, and the Erev, evening, and the boker, morning, 
we're Yom Echad, day one. Just gives us a little feel of the Hebrew in that. The first surprise is the name of God used several times, Elohim. Why is that a surprise? Well, it's a plural noun, Elohim. The El of Elohim was the common name for a god in the Near Eastern region, uh, often the head of the pantheon of the gods, um, often depicted actually with long hair and a beard. Um, El shows up in Syria, in Babylon, among the Canaanites, and is adopted by Israel. And Elohim was the plural form. So the correct pronoun for this divine being would be they, not he, she, or it. And this is from the tradition known for inventing monotheism. But it must be a flexible form of monotheism, a kind of a pluralistic monotheism. So that's telling us something. These people were very much at ease with paradox. These people were not over-concerned with logical consistency as if paradox and two contradictory things true at the same time, this paradox was necessary to employ in the realm of divine discourse, talking about the divine. This ease with paradox has, I think, a great advantage. It allows for more, multiple points of view, which is very helpful when we're talking about something as subjective and mysterious as humans trying to communicate things far beyond them, like God. So the experience of a plural noun, or the appearance of a plural noun for the divine, Elohim, in writings famous for inventing monotheism, well, that's a surprise. The second surprise is like unto it, the next term used for the divine, uh, Ruach, Elohim, and props to Noah for mastering that Hebrew. <laughs> well done. Uh, Ruach Elohim is the next name for God. Ruach is spirit, wind, or breath, which it is, depends on the context. So the Jewish Publication Society translation of Ruach Elohim is the wind of God. The wind of Elohim was over the water. Also, hello, Ruach is a feminine noun. So she, rather than he, would fit best. If Ruach Elohim showed up as a Zoom participant, we might see she, they as the pronouns in the little, in the little name box. There's a very good evidence that the presence of the divine in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah, was perceived as a feminine divine presence. And I bet uh, Susan King's gonna get into that in her class uh, introducing Sophia. So that's two surprises, just with the opening verse of this introduction to God. Here's the third, we're almost done. This creative divine agency named Ruach Elohim breathes or speaks things into being, but like an artist whose art has to speak back to the artist before the artist knows what it is. So anyone who's ever been an artist knows there's something mysterious going on when you're creating a piece of art. Uh, it's not like cooking by a recipe or assembling something from Ikea according to the instructions. No, 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 there, there's a woo-woo factor in creation. Um, like good novelists, they, they, they start with an idea for characters and for a, a beginning of a plot. But once they get into writing, 
is like the characters in the plot gain their own agency, kind of have a life of their own. They take on a life of their own. And the writer isn't just concocting them. She's discovering who they are, who they want to be, just, just like a reader does. So same thing here. So Elohim says light, something appears, and Elohim, before declaring it anything at all, has to look at it, see what it is, behold it, to see that it is good. Uh, Urella Andrews, an art professor, calls this uh, the necessity of the creation to show off to the creator. So the creation has to reveal itself even to the creator before the creator knows what it is. And that's the pattern throughout this opening poem. All the various created things in the different days of creation, including all the creatures, have to show themselves to the divine creative agency, Ruach Elohim, and only then does the divine creative agency know that they are good. So this is another paradox for us in relation to this God. We can say this God knows us better than we know ourselves, but equally, we can say that this God doesn't know us until we show ourselves to she, they. So this God has agency, can do things, can act in the world, but so do we in relation to this God. We have agency. That's something to place in our pipes for the purpose of smoking it. So there we have it. Three surprises in our introduction to God. Amen. Okay, let's have a little time of meditation to close out this time and to prepare for the lighting of our candles and for communion. We'll take some time um, right now. So if you like and you're in a position to do so, you can settle into a comfortable position. Um, begin by noticing the force of gravity on the body, the points of contact with the chair or the feet on the floor, wherever it is you find yourself. Feel that connection to the surface that you're connected to. And then begin with a few slow, deep breaths, maybe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Go ahead. Now hear these opening words that we have considered today and let your mind wander around the words, not striving to understand them, just being in their proximity, letting them wash over you. I'll read this portion twice with a half minute between readings. When Elohim began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and Ruach Elohim, she-they, sweeping over the water, 
Elohim said, Let there be light. Again, when Elohim began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and Ruach Elohim sweeping over the water, Elohim said, Let there be light. And I'll close by reading it a third time to end. When Elohim began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and Ruach Elohim sweeping over the water, Elohim said, Let there be light. Okay.